Welcome to the Life Care Services Health Services Division podcast series. I'm your host today, Laura Franco, Vice President, Director of Post-Acute Regulatory Strategy. And today we are talking about PDPM and we are specifically having a conversation with Hillary Foreman, who is the Chief Clinical Strategies Officer for HealthPro Heritage. So welcome, Hillary. I'm really happy to have you here today. Thank you so much, Laura. I look forward to the conversation. Wonderful. So what what uh, what what Hillary and I want to do today is have a conversation about implementation, PDPM implementation. At LCS, what we are doing starting in June is we are going to be walking all of our communities through a, a transition process in June. So that transition process gives us a long time between June and October, which sounds like a long time, but it's really not, um, to start practicing so that we don't wake up on October 1st and the whole world has changed and we have to start from scratch because there's a lot of things we can start doing now and incorporating now so that they become second nature, part of what we do um, on a regular basis starting October 1st. And then I think it will also help our, um, our stakeholders, our medical directors and other admitting physicians and those discharge planners and everyone from, from not inside the organization who's working on PDPM, but externally. So they get used to the dialogue and the narrative and the questions we may be asking and the additional information. So, so Hillary, we're starting in June. And we're going to take small steps. So we're going to start initially with making sure that we're getting that principal diagnosis. Now we know that the new MDS isn't out yet, so we don't have the new field on the MDS um, to be able to, to put that principal diagnosis, but we do have I-8000A, and we should be using that right now which we are, but now we can really start to look at what is the correct diagnosis if we were in PDPM. So that's how we're getting started, Hillary. So, so my question to you is, what are you seeing out there? And you know, how are you making recommendations to how folks are getting started? Laura, I think you're starting at exactly the same point we've recommended everyone else start. Really, that principal diagnosis is a challenge. We are very much, as an industry, used to collecting hospital information rather than the information that we're using. And frequently, we see those return to provider codes being some, if not all, of the codes on our claims, even going through triple check today. So I think that might be our biggest challenge is changing that behavior, but not only identifying which codes we shouldn't be using, but what do we replace them with? We have to think about, okay, I might not be able to use the muscle weakness, the debility, the deconditioning type symptom codes, but how do I identify the right diagnosis? And probably more importantly, how do I get that documented by our physicians in order to code it? So I think that's a great start in getting the team to even identify what codes we should be looking for, but then working out that communication with our physicians and making sure that ends up in our medical record is going to be that next challenge. 
Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's interesting, Hillary, because we have some excuse me, we have some tools from Team TSI that we were able to look at the first quarter of 2019, and we were able to take that uh, principal diagnosis um, um, section of the MDS. So we're using that I-8000A, and we were able to look at all of those that would have been returned to provider under PDPM. And the number was staggering when I looked at it as a company as a whole. So it, it was it was pretty um, it was pretty sobering when you look at it and say, oh my goodness. Now that doesn't mean that we're not doing anything wrong right now because we're not paid. We're certainly we're certainly treating folks appropriately to their diagnostic diagnostic codes. So it what's changed is that payment. So it's that's why it's so critical. And I think that um, I think you're right. I think that's a really big step. So so my other question is we're we're being asked for a lot of nuts and bolts by our community. Give us the nuts and bolts of what we need to do and how we need to do it. And I think one of those big transition nuts and bolts pieces that we're working on is um, the the morning meeting or what we're going to call the PDPM huddle. And you know really what needs to start happening in our practice transition. And I'm going to say practice because that's what we're doing. We want to practice it till it's perfect when we flip the switch at midnight on uh, September 30th and go into October 1st. So, you know, what are what are you all recommending in terms of how those meetings and communications and that dialogue's going to look? Yeah, that is probably going to be one of our most critical meetings, I think, for all of us. And right now, the practice we're encouraging people to do is, one, choose the principal diagnosis and start to be able to disseminate that information because a lot of our team members are going to need that in order to plan their next steps, whether it be utilization by therapy or care planning by nursing or additional documentation. The second piece is to start, if they haven't already, having that interdisciplinary GG discussion. So having therapy and nursing come to the table with the GG scoring and really start to have that discussion of when did the patient benefit from service and what does that usual performance look like so that MDS has a good sense of how to code that. And then I think as the practice evolves, staying on a those lines with the ICD-10, thinking about what are those nursing and NTA skills and making sure that we have those for two reasons. One, supportive documentation. So whether that documentation come from nursing, from therapy, dietary, psych, pharmacy, making sure all of those stakeholders know what to document, but also going back to that ICD-10 coding. We're going to have a limited number of spaces that we need to put those codes on our claims, and we need to make sure that they're reflecting each one of those NTA items and points that we're going to be documenting against. So I think that that use of that meeting and really trying to align it with the 48-hour baseline care plan is really just expanding a process, but I think it is going to take a little practice to start to have people come to the table with that much information. So so that makes a lot of sense. And you, you talked about several different things there. Let's talk for a minute about Section GG. Um, I think there's I think there's some 
angst, not in section GG, but maybe some angst um, in terms of how are we going to get that data and get it by day three so that we can we can define that usual performance. So do you have any words of wisdom on that piece of it? We are really advising, and what we're seeing in most of our uh, communities anyway, is that nursing build that into their initial assessment and therapy do the same. So they're able to collect as much of that data as possible and then really truly have a discussion of what they feel is the most usual because each one of us sees those residents at a snap in time. So nursing obviously sees them more time than therapy. Therapy puts them into a environment of success. So we both see those patients through different sets of glasses and I think it's important to come together and say, what do we really think? What, did you see them at a good time? Did I see them at a better time? What do we think is most usual? So we want to set that baseline and we want to set it correctly for a few reasons. We want to make sure, one, we know where we're starting from to care plan to our goals to get that patient to the next level of care. But we also have to think about um, where our patients are going to make progress because with GG, we have to be able to set that goal as well. So understanding where we really think they're going to get to and making sure that baseline is accurate really, I think, will help us with that goal setting. Yeah, I think I think you're correct on that. I think I think the big difference is we're so used to um, the assistance that we're providing <laughs> rather than watching what's usual. Does that make sense? At least from a, a nursing perspective, I think therapy sets their baseline based on, okay, this is what the resident can do. Now, where can I get them? But from a nursing perspective, um, we're, we're used to giving them that assistance. And, and so I think that's a shift in thinking in terms of capturing that usual behavior. And then also saying, you know, if they, if they need assistance, provide assistance um, in, in their normal activities of daily life, if they need assistance, then that assistance becomes usual or normal, right? Right. And I think what's more confusing, we still have section G. I so totally agree. And GG, <laughs> we have to follow different rules. We're looking for different portraits of that resident using very, very similar tasks. So I think that that creates a little bit of confusion as well. So that's why I think having that interdisciplinary discussion helps all of us practice through that. I, I think you're absolutely spot on with that. Um, whenever I do any training with our organization, I always remind everyone, Section G is not going away. Section G has a purpose. Um, it has the same purpose. The only difference is it doesn't calculate into the reimbursement. That's the difference. But it has a very important function. And so we can't forget Section G. So I, thanks for bringing that up because I think it's it's key. And we don't want anybody out there confused about that. So, so um, you also mentioned the non-therapy ancillaries um, and the comorbidities. Um, I, think, I think the concept of capturing the comorbidities in terms of reimbursement is absolutely fantastic because I think it addresses something 
from a very long time that we've always cared for folks who had comorbidities um, along with their primary diagnosis. We just may not have been reimbursed for it. We've always cared for them. We've always care planned it, et cetera. We might not have captured the exact code properly, but we've cared for them and we haven't been really reimbursed to that level. So capturing those comorbidities appropriately and making sure we get all of them is going to be critical moving forward. So so what are you all looking at in terms of uh, those those NTAs? Yeah, the NTA, that's a broad, broad category. And again, a lot of it is those diagnosis codes, but the services and the documentation to support it is going to be so critical. So one of the best practices that we've been sharing uh, with some of our communities is really not to put all of this on nursing or medicine, but really start to look at all of the different professionals in our interdisciplinary team and what they can contribute to the documentation. So for example, a lot of people have consulting pharmacists that might be doing drug regimen review. Well, part of the drug regimen review includes looking at the diagnoses associated to the different drugs. So they're involved in some degree of looking at diagnostics and comorbidities. We have therapists, speech therapists particularly, looking at a lot of those speech therapy comorbidities. So if speech is involved, are they being asked part of that diagnostic coding and what does their interaction with dietary, for example, look like or with nursing? So we can also look to some of our psych professionals. So a lot of those professionals might be intervening early on in a resident's stay to look at either stabilizing or changing medications. And again, associated to those comorbidities that might have been exacerbated through this process. So rather than just saying that's a nursing category, we wanna really look at how the interdisciplinary team not only documents that, but brings that back so we know where to look. Because the other challenge we have, I think, with our MDS coordinators is they're becoming detectives. They're having to really look and look through all the documentation, who's involved. And I think your idea of the PDPM huddle would be excellent place for the interdisciplinary team to bring that information forward. So at least our MDS has a good direction of where to go look. Exactly, exactly. I think, uh, I, I think you know, you're absolutely right in bringing in um, all of the professionals. And again, that's a shift for us from something, not that we haven't done that where's, where we've needed to, but a real philosophy and change in terms of we've we've always talked about the interdisciplinary team interdisciplinary team but but really the the importance of that just really rises you know a hundred percent when we're talking about that and making sure that we're capturing everything so again I think that's going to be a learning curve I think that'll be a big learning curve the other learning curve and and it really shouldn't be because documentation, 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 right? I mean, we've said that for a billion years. Um, if it isn't documented, it didn't ha didn't happen. But from a nursing perspective, um, I know that that there were some proponents of now let's just document upon exception. Well, those days are gone in PDPM. You cannot document upon exception, and we can't have checklists. Those days are gone. There has to be that that 
succinct narrative that really hits it. Why is this person receiving care by a skilled professional in a skilled nursing facility? So I know documentation for therapy um, has always been so important, even, even under Regs 4. Um, it, it ha you have to demonstrate through the documentation. Um, nursing, it's been important too, but I think that level rises. So how are you seeing therapy and nursing working together, um, which has been the age-old age old adage, right? Um, we got to get therapy and nursing working together on uh, documentation. How do you see that moving forward? Well, I think uh, really the tables have turned. Exactly what you said. Uh, for years, nursing has supported therapy, and now it's therapy's turn to support nursing. The, the other challenge PDPM, I think, brought us was this concept of burden uh, shifting from therapy to nursing. Because at the end of the day, the definition of skill hasn't changed. Right. So exactly. skill is still a daily nursing need or a regular therapy. However, right now that skill for therapy is being held to task by a COT. When the COT goes away, skill has to be established on a daily basis by those providing it. So to your point, there has to be a very succinct note that explains what the skill is, how the patient's benefiting and that they need to continue that. So again, I think just because the component is called a nursing component or an NTA component, it doesn't mean that therapy can't contribute to that. Therapy has background in all different clinical areas. They are OTs and speech therapists have background in cognition. Our PTs have background in wound care. We have OTs that do a lot with incontinence management. We have a lot of speech that have to do with altered diets, dysphagia, things of that um, significance now under PDPM. So again, to your point, we've always treated patients for these things. We've always care planned these things, but we've never used the documentation from those professionals necessarily in the coding or not to the extent we're going to need to. So I think the more that nursing and therapy can sit down and really discuss what clinical capabilities do we have in each of our communities? What clinical capabilities do we need in each of our communities? And who can contribute to that documentation, I think is going to be critical because now we have the opportunity, if we should take it, to really have interdisciplinary documentation. I'll give you the perfect example. You may not know this, but I am a wound care PT by background. So I have been doing wound care in skilled nursing facilities for years, and there was always a battle as to who would measure the wound, where would you document it? We didn't want to have conflicting information. And one of the things PDPM allows us is that we're supporting the clinical need of the patient. The documentation can be in the primary EMR. So I have had the opportunity to now get access and do documentation within point-click care, matrix care, my unity, all different systems where I would, if I provided the wound care, I would write the documentation and I would sign off on the ETAR that I provided the treatment. That could be a huge cost savings in a facility. That could be a huge reduction in burden on nursing in some facilities, but we still get that same documentation that we need to code the MDS. So I think that's uh, probably a very specific example of how therapy can support nursing. But I think if we really start to look at that as an opportunity, there's probably a lot more examples we could come up with.
And I, you know, it's all coming back to that word team, the interdisciplinary team, the interdisciplinary team. That's what this all comes back to when we're, when we're looking at this transition to PDPM. And so um, one more area I'd like to cover today is MDS. So, you know, you, I, I love the way that you described it. You said the MDS nurse is becoming a detective. You're absolutely right. Um, and, and we're looking at the MDS nurse kind of being like the care manager also, the detective and the care manager, making sure that we've gotten every piece of information from all of the stakeholders that are, are caring for the resident um, to make sure we capture it all to get the appropriate reimbursement for the services that we're providing. So I think that that MDS position is going to change pretty significantly. And I know we say that, but I'm not sure how much folks really understand that. So can you comment on that? Sure, absolutely. So I agree completely. MDS is going to become more critical than ever. I remember when RCS1 first came out and then PDPM, uh, a lot of the industry had the reaction, oh, we can reduce our MDS. And I remember thinking exactly the opposite. <laughs> that their position just became more important than ever um, on two fronts, really. Uh, one, managing this concept of documentation and reimbursement and all of those pieces, but two, really as the care manager and teacher, because as you said, we need to practice all of these things because we need to get better at it. And they're already ahead of that curve a little bit. They already have that experience. They understand the tool. They know what they need to code it, but they need to share that now experience with the rest of the IDT team so that we can all help them through this process. But I do think that the other advantage that gives them is that they now will be the keeper of the most complete picture of a resident. So that gives them a great vantage point as a care coordinator in looking at a patient making progress, looking at a patient making changes, identifying whether or not we need to do an IPA, whether or not we need to look at planning discharge earlier, later, and making sure that that discharge is now based on the clinical needs of the patient. You know, I think that as a team, we have traditionally looked at our short term and done a lot of our discharge planning around the therapy discharge date. And in some cases, that might still be appropriate. But now the MDS is going to have that care manager vantage point to see, is the skill really in medication management? Is it in teaching and training? Is it in respiratory management? Are there other skills that we really need to work on with that resident or caregivers to make sure that we are making them have a successful discharge and not a risk for rehospitalization? And because they're going to have that clear picture, I think it puts them in the exact right seat to do that. I totally agree. I totally agree. And and again, it's really important that people aren't looking um, myopically at a reduction in MDSs and looking at, oh, maybe I can reduce the number of people. Absolutely. I'm right with you, Hillary. Um, don't do that. Don't be so short-sighted. You're going to need those MDS nurses. What they're doing has expanded so much. So, uh, so I think that was a very good point, too. 
So Hillary, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. I thank you so much for joining me. And uh, maybe I can have you back um, in about a month once we, we've started the transition so that we can talk about maybe some of the, uh, the lessons we're learning, some of the things that are working great, some of the things we need to change or focus on. Would you be willing to do that? I would be more than happy to, Laura. Thanks so much for the invitation and good luck with the kickoff. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We hope you'll join Hillary and I again when we connect. Thanks so much. Legal disclaimer. Life Care Services LLC is not engaged in rendering legal advice. Therefore, any information provided in this podcast, although intended to be correct, is also not intended to replace or supersede the advice of your legal counsel. Also, thank you to Ben Sounds for the music provided in this podcast.